You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. As I mentioned just a moment ago, we've been uh, in this series entitled A Beautiful Mess for several months now. We actually started off in the spring with the first half of, uh, of this book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians, that we've been working through. And then we hit pause on it over the course of the summer and came back around to part two uh, here in the fall. And so for many of you, you've been walking through this book of the Bible with us from the very beginning. If you haven't, uh, I would encourage you to uh, consider going online. Uh, we have all of the uh, the sermons that uh, have come up to this point through this book of the Bible, you can go listen and, and work your way through and, and even catch up to now as we're working our way toward the end of this series. Uh, but the beauty of this book of the Bible is that though Paul threads things together, he's a very uh, logical person. He, he's thinking with a train of thought, and he's kind of orchestrating that throughout any particular book of the Bible that he's the author of. Um, th- there's also a sense in which uh, as we uh, take these particular passages on their own, that he has much to say that speaks to to the human heart. And so I think you're going to get a lot out of this morning, even if this is your first Sunday, your second or third Sunday, you're new on the scene. Um, This morning, we want to look at some pretty pertinent questions, some questions that I think most of us have asked, and if we haven't, we should be asking. Questions like, what happens when we die? What happens to a Christian after death? Uh, What will the resurrection of our bodies be like? How can disintegrated bodies be resurrected? What kind of body can God raise up out of a heap of decay? What about Christians who are alive when Jesus comes back? And then what what do these kind of questions have to do with the here and now? Um, This sounds very futuristic. Is there any purpose uh, behind what Paul's talking about this morning that could drive us even today as we live this thing out called the Christian life? And so with that in mind, um, I would encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in uh, verse 38 and working our way through the end of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. We want everyone exploring the truth claims of Christianity on their own time. And so that's our gift. Merry Christmas. You can have that Bible. It's yours. We're not going to hunt you down and try to get it back from you or demand your soul as payment for that book. So... With that being said, let me pray, and then we'll just jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you again for 1 Corinthians. Thank you for uh, inspiring these words uh, that the Apostle Paul penned uh, through the orchestrating of the Holy Spirit. Um, God, you have had much to teach us thus far, and this morning um, I'm excited about uh, what you have to uh, present to us through your word uh, even today. Uh, God, many of us have lost loved ones, Uh, the idea of death, the The idea of resurrection matters to us Uh, on a personal note. All of us, if we're honest, know that we're on a trajectory toward death one day. And uh, we try to deny that. We try to run from that. But the reality is that uh, we just can't escape it. And uh, whether it it comes soon or or later, uh, many years from now, uh, we have to deal with these types of questions. And I think that uh, in doing so... uh, by way of your word, they don't present us with hopelessness and despair, but rather with hope and peace and comfort and joy. And so I pray that that would be the case this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, work in our minds and in our hearts to uh, create uh, joy and peace and comfort where there is hopelessness and 
uh, despair and devastation. Uh, God, would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? We lift these things up in the name of your risen son, Jesus. Amen. All right, verse 35, Paul jumps right in and, and he addresses a couple of questions that the Christians in Corinth have brought to bear. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Uh, with what kind of body do they come? The, the first of those two questions, we talked about this last week, comes from Greek philosophy. The idea amongst the Greek philosophers was that the body is evil. It's to be escaped. It's the reason that we struggle with gluttony, with drunkenness, uh, with sexual immorality, with murder, and, and the list of sins goes on. And so the Greek philosophers believe, well, we should just escape the body. The goal is to get away from it because it corrupts the spirit. And so one day we will go off and be floaty beings in some alternate universe. And so uh, the Christians in Corinth had bought into that philosophy and were asking the question, how is it that the dead can be, can be raised? The Greek philosophers are saying this, how is that not true? And so Paul responds, very kindly in verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, he's saying it's foolish to think that way because that's antithetical to what the scriptures declare to be true. And he brings up this agricultural example. He says, think of it the way a plant or a tree comes into being. Before a seed can grow into a plant or a tree, it must be buried in the ground like a body when we die that the seed itself must disintegrate. It must be destroyed if new life is to appear. And so Paul's saying that the fact that a seed can experience resurrection on the other side of burial, on the other side of disintegration, is meant to point us to the reality that we will experience resurrection on the other side of burial, on the other side of death, that what follows death is much more glorious than what the Greek philosophers thought to be true. Every winter is followed by a spring, you could say. That resurrection is written in the fabric of creation. When you look around, you see this idea of resurrection in the very world that God's created. And so Paul's using an example of creation here. And he goes on to say in verse 35, there's a second question you guys are asking. With what kind of body do they come? With what kind of body are the dead raised? And so it has to do with the nature of our eternal bodies. What kind of body will the dead in Christ have when they come back to life? What kind of body can raise up, uh, God raise up out of a heap of decay? And so Paul uses the same example to answer the second question as well. He's going to argue, and we'll talk about this a good deal this morning, that there's continuity and, and discontinuity between your present body and your resurrection body, that there will be similarities and there will be differences. Now, Paul's not out to answer every single question, questions like uh, you've probably thought along the way, questions that I've thought along the way. Am I going to be the uh, 20-something-year-old version of me in heaven because I like that version the best? Am I going to be the pre-gray hair showing up in my beard version of me? Um, you, know, you start to ask these types of questions, and, and really you get to a point where when the Bible doesn't answer it, we should probably just stop because we then create um, forms of hope that just aren't helpful because they're not rooted in truth. Uh, but what we can trust is that God is on the move, and we'll see that this morning, and he knows what he's doing, and he's a very creative and powerful God, and where he stops in Scripture allows us to have faith in what he's going to do, and he's going to do great things. Paul argues that there is uh, a continuity and a discontinuity in terms of who we are and, and who we will be, so that it's an error to think that we'll have the exact same body in heaven, and yet it's also an error to think that we'll have a completely different body 
in heaven without any continuity. And so he says in verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He says a, a wheat farmer doesn't plant a full stalk of wheat if he wants to grow more stalks of wheat, right? That would be weird if he's just kind of crumpling up a wheat stalk and burying it in the ground. That's not how it works. Rather, Paul says he plants a kernel. Let me, let me show you a picture up on the screen of a kernel of wheat. It's really small, looks fairly insignificant, unimportant, not too sexy, right? If I were to, and this is really difficult to do, but if, you, if I could somehow pull off the men in black thing and hold up the big black stick and erase your mind of every memory that you've ever had of passing uh, a field of crops or uh, any movie that you've seen that has crops involved, signs, whatever you've seen out there that, that puts this picture of what a field of crops should look like uh, and could erase that from your mind completely and showed you that, that kernel of wheat, what, what would you assume could come to bear out of that tiny little kernel? I don't know about you guys, but what I would not envision would be what's up on the screen now. This massive, glorious, golden field of wheat shimmering in, in the sunlight. It's, it's beautiful, right? It's something much better than the picture of the kernel of wheat that I just showed you. And, and God can do God can do that. God can do a lot with a little. You see continuity. You see that the kernel of wheat didn't grow into an apple tree, right? That would be really weird. Farmers wouldn't know what to do with themselves. They're throwing seeds in the ground. They have no idea what's gonna shoot up out of the ground. Rather, the kernel of wheat grows into a stalk of wheat. We know that to be true. So you see continuity, but you, you also see discontinuity in that the field is something far different from the kernel itself. You go, God can make that out of that? Yeah, he sure can. He's a creative God, and we'll see that in just a moment. His creativity will be put on full display when he gives you your resurrection body. That what's to come is not a product of chance. It's not a product of human effort. It's a result of God's decreed will. God makes kernels into stalks. God makes glorious things out of nothing. That's what he does. That's what he did in the very beginning when he spoke creation into existence out of nothing with his very words. Paul says it in verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body, that God gets the credit, God does it. And Paul goes on to use verses 39 through 41 to make clear that God is unquestionably capable of, of making things differently and creatively, that it's in perfect alignment with his character and being to do so. Look at verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Think about it this way. Think about how diverse human beings are on planet Earth. There are billions of us in the world, right? You can look around right now and just see the differences between you and people that you're surrounded by right now. God does that in the billions, and that's just talking about people who are alive and breathing right now. That doesn't even take into account the course of human history over thousands and thousands of years, the number of human beings that God has created. And what God did not do is create the first one and go, man, that was really hard. I just need to replicate that over and over again. I don't think I can do something different than that. God's not Henry Ford. He's not sitting on an assembly line just pumping out the same thing over and over and over again. 
He, he never gets bored. He's creative. He's constantly creating people to be different from one another. And he does the same thing with animals. Look at the animals that inhabit the land. This is my terrible attempt up on the screen to try to encompass uh, some of the diversity of land-dwelling animals. Right, this is me on Google for about 10 minutes, and it does no justice to God's creativity. You can go to Zoo Atlanta and just see these land-dwelling animals in, in their glory, and it stretches far beyond just what you can find in a zoo. Right? There are, there are animals on the land and in the skies and in the waters that you and I have never seen because human beings have not yet found them. That God is unbelievably creative. Think about all of the winged creatures that inhabit the skies. Any bird watchers out there? I know to say that I watch birds sometimes makes, makes me sound really old. Um, I, I, do, I, don't, I don't think I do that because I'm getting older. Maybe, maybe I am. Maybe my father-in-law's rubbing off on me. But, um, but I think it has more to do with the fact that now when I sit in my backyard, I'm just amazed at the creatures that God brings to the little woodland area behind my backyard. Um, I'll, I'll be sitting with a book and a cup of coffee, and all of a sudden I look up, and there are like five different breeds of bird that are just sitting on the same tree limbs. It's quite amazing that uh, God is incredibly creative with those creatures that inhabit the skies, from bats to butterflies, from owls to dragonflies, and you can kind of fill in the blanks with things that you don't see up on that screen that you know that God's created that amaze you in that particular domain. Think about all the creatures that inhabit the waters, fresh water, salt water, brackish water, from killer whales to, to the duck-billed platypus, from jellyfish to giant squid, things down in the Mariana Trench that we haven't found yet because we can't create the kind of structures and, and um, operating systems to get down that far without dying because God's that amazing and, and he creates an element of mystery even in the very world that we inhabit that we think we know everything about. God's unbelievably creative. And then Paul goes from, from animals um, to the, the heavenly domain, to the cosmos in verse 40, he says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory, that from comets to galaxies, from black holes to supernovas, God is unbelievably creative. From the splendor of the sun to the beaming light of the moon, God is unbelievably creative. That every star in the universe burns with the brightness of its own splendor and glory. Just like every snowflake is different, so is every star. And we haven't begun to explore all of them. We haven't even come close. That God is unbelievably creative. He creates everything with its own shape, size, and substance because he's capable of mind-blowing creativity. And, and, and this should blow our minds. If you're a Christian, He's making you into a new creation. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy, people. That one day you'll have a resurrection body and it will be mind-blowing because it's created by a creative, mind-blowing God. He's the one who will make it into what it will be. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's connecting the dots here to our future resurrection bodies. He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The, the body you have right now is mortal. It's corruptible. We get sick. Some of you guys are sick right now and you snuck your way into the auditorium, didn't tell anybody. 
Some of your family members are homesick right now. Some of you guys have experienced sickness in the last week or two. I know our family has. We've, we've gone through coughing and sneezing and projectile vomiting, and by God's grace, we're, we're on the back end and over that now. We all experience that. We all experience sickness, and we all die. None of us are escaping death unless Jesus returns before we breathe our last breath. It was Benjamin Franklin who coined the phrase, in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. You can be sure of both of those. Right? Our bodies are destined for death. We fight against it. We claw against it as best we can through healthy exercise, healthy eating, some things, good things, through Botox and plastic surgery and anti-aging products. We, we fight and claw against death, but we will all perish. There's nothing new under the sun. We're not the generation that's now figured out how to escape death. I saw a movie yesterday Ryan Reynolds' movie entitled Selfless. The guy tries to escape death. That's the goal of the movie, is to somehow uh, work your way around the system and not die, but continue to live on by by just robbing other people of their bodies. Crazy sci-fi concept, but the Bible says you can't do that. You You can't escape death. But what Paul says is on the other side of death, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more sneezing and coughing and projectile vomiting. There won't be any of that stuff anymore. Nobody will, will have to go stand on the outside of heaven for a week or two waiting to get better before they can sit in front of the glory of the king again. There will be no more cancer. For those of you who have lost loved ones to that horrible disease, it won't exist anymore. There will be no more Alzheimer's. There will be no more decaying of the human mind. There will be no more stillbirth. For those of you who have lost children somewhere along the way in pregnancy or even weeks after they've come out of the womb, there'll be no more of that. It'll be over and done with, no more suffering. Our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. They'll be immortal. C.S. Lewis says it really well. Um, When you engage human beings, you're not amongst mere mortals. You're amongst everlasting horrors or everlasting splendors, depending on the decision for Jesus. Paul goes on to say in verse 43 that the the body we have now is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That you and I are born with a sin nature. That from our first breath, there's an element of dishonor that we carry. We use our bodies in dishonorable ways. But on the other side of death, no more sin. For those of you who who have battled through sin all your life and you're going, man, I just can't can't overcome this one, or, or this particular one seems to rear its ugly head, or this root idol is so deeply rooted that I'm not sure it's ever going to disappear in my life. Paul says, on the other side of death, no more sin, no more sin struggle, no more having to call your accountability partner for God knows what, or, or having to deal with that problem in your marriage that you can't seem to overcome. No more defilement, no more dirtiness, no more feeling filthy in the moments where you sin against God and others. No more shame. No more having to wear proverbial fig leaves around people because you're scared that they might actually see the real you. On the other side of death is glory, Paul says. That word glory comes from the Greek word doxa, which is where we get our word doxology. It means praise. What Paul's saying is our resurrected bodies will be glorious, they'll be honorable to our king, they'll be designed for the eternal praise of God unending. The You could say it this way, you won't be like a car heater anymore. You won't have to come in and warm up through the first song or two when you're in heaven. It won't take a song or two for you to get in the groove of worshiping your God, your maker, your king. 
you'll always be spiritually warm. Your body will be an instrument of unending praise forever and ever. He goes on to say in verse 43, that the body you have now is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That the body we have now lacks strength. But on the other side of death, no more weakness, no more frailty. That our resurrected bodies will reign with Christ in power over all of creation. Paul says it really well in 2 Timothy 2.12. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Going back to chapter 6, Paul says that you and I uh, will one day judge the world and angels. I've used this example before uh, that you and I will participate in the final eradication of evil. You, you remember the story, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. At the very end... Um, Aslan and uh, Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter are, are a part of eradicating the white witch and her band of followers forever so that they can have eternal peace and not have to sleep with one eye open for eternity. And not only that, we're told after the final battle that Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter are crowned and given four thrones at the castle by the sea that the reality is that you and I are co-heirs with Christ, whether you can wrap your mind around that or not. We will reign with Christ over all of creation, and we must do so in a body that, that is capable of power, not weakness, and God will give us that. Verse 44, the body you and I have now is a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, Paul says. Paul's not contrasting here the material and the immaterial, to be clear. Remember, Jesus' body um, had a material aspect to it. He could eat fish. He could say to doubting Thomas, touch the scars in my hand. Paul's not contrasting the material and the immaterial. Rather, he's contrasting the natural and the supernatural, that uh, you and I don't have a body that is currently suited uh, for the new heavens and the new earth. The body you have right now is suited for the present life. It's ill-equipped for the new heavens and the new earth. But Paul's saying your resurrected body will be renewed by the Holy Spirit. The power that, that raised Jesus from the dead will be fully at work with you, uh, in you. That your human existence will be exalted to heaven, Paul's saying. And then he goes on to make his point in verses 45 through 49 by arguing from the lesser to the greater, from, from Adam and his garden in Genesis 3 to to Jesus who sets the pattern for our resurrection. Look at the end of verse 44 and let's read through verse 49. Paul says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those uh, who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, so Paul goes back to Genesis 2, verse 7, to make the point that there are two races in the world because there are two, two Adams. You have the first Adam, uh, Adam from the Garden of Eden, who is the head of one race and all who are united to him. And then you have the last Adam, Jesus himself, who's the head of another race and all who are united to him. And what Paul's doing is he's helping us to see what these two Adams are like so that we can better understand what our resurrection body will be like. That the first Adam failed his test in his garden, the garden of, of Eden, and sin entered the world and all became sinners uh, united with him. And his characteristics are stamped on all of mankind. Sin, corruption, 
weakness, dishonor, those things that we've been talking about this morning. The last Adam, Jesus, passed his test in his garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And through faith, we're united to him. And his characteristics are now stamped on all of those who belong to him. Paul says in Romans 8, and and this, this verse should blow our minds every time we read it. Paul says in Romans 8 that we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He says here in verse 49 that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Another way of saying that we will bear the image of Jesus. That one day the work will be completed and you and I will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. You go, man, I don't feel like Jesus today. And, and there are a lot of days I'm with you. I don't either. But one day you will bear the perfect image of God the Son. No more sin no more shame, no more suffering, no more corruption, no more weakness. How do we know? Verse 45, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit that Paul contrasts the two. He says, the first Adam was created. He owed his life to the one who made him. He was given life just like you and me. He was dependent upon his maker. The last Adam, Jesus, wasn't created. He owes his life to no one. He's the source of his own being, Paul says. He wasn't given life, rather he gives life to you and to me. And he will finish what he started, which is why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That one way you could say it is this, Paul's saying that, that the first Adam will not get the last word, that the last Adam, Jesus, will get the last word. And he goes on to say in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul's not saying that we don't have a physical body here. I think John Piper's really helpful in his commentary on this particular verse. He says this, he says, flesh and blood simply means human nature as we know it, mortal, perishable, sin-stained, decaying, something so fragile and temporary as the body we now have will not be the stuff of the eternal, durable, unshakable, indestructible kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean there won't be bodies. It means that our bodies will be greater. They will be our bodies, but they will be different and more wonderful. Again, you have continuity and discontinuity. You have similarities and differences. And he goes on to To unpack that, verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That if you're a Christian, and I think there have been some in the church that have confused this and mixed this up and we now have this idea that we're gonna be like winged baby angels playing harps and weird weird ideas of heaven, if you're a Christian, here's, here's what happens when you die. When you die, your physical body remains on this earth and your soul, your spirit, goes immediately to be with God in his presence. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, that to be absent of the body is to be present with Jesus. He goes on to say in Philippians 1, 21, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, I can share the gospel with people. More people will meet Jesus. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better that to leave this flesh and bone body is to be with Jesus. And if those two passages weren't convincing enough, 
We see Jesus on his cross uh, talking to the criminal uh, to the side of him who is just trusted in him by faith. And he says to him in Luke 23, truly, I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be in my presence the moment you die and uh, breathe your last breath. That that when Jesus returns and and raises from the dead the bodies of all all believers for all time who have died, then the bodies of those who have died will be united with the Spirit and we will be given our new resurrection bodies. That's the doctrine of the resurrection that is to come for us according to the scriptures. That Paul says living or dead will all be changed in an instant. That word changed implies continuity and discontinuity, right? That this body will not be destroyed or abandoned. That God's not starting from scratch. He's not throwing out this recipe and going a little pinch of this, a little pinch of that, but I don't want anything to do with with what I originally had to work with. Rather, he's raising our old perishable bodies and changing them. So there is continuity. Yet there's discontinuity. Those, Those bodies won't be what they once were. They'll be greater. They'll be imperishable. And how long will it take for God to do this work? This is amazing. The word translated moment in most of your Bibles in verse 52 is the Greek word atomos. It's where we get the scientific concept of the atom, something that's so small that that you can't divide it anymore. That what Paul's saying is that moment is gonna be so instantaneous that you could call it an indivisible part of time, a fraction of 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 a second. The, the amount of time it takes your eyelid to flutter, Paul says. It, that quickly, you're gonna be changed forever. That the same God who spoke creation into existence will speak an instantaneous word and you'll be forever changed in the best way imaginable. That you don't just serve a creative God, you serve a powerful God. He says in verse 53, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on Immortality. Again, notice the continuity and the discontinuity. God's not starting from scratch. Something's being put on the perishable body, the mortal body. And yet there's, there's a difference. There's a discontinuity. The perishable body is gonna put on imperishability. The mortal body is gonna put on immortality. Again, you, you have a body currently suited for this world, for the present life. Your body's ill-equipped for the new heavens and the new earth. That You could say it this way. Perishable and mortal are not adjectives that will be used when Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. That God's gonna get creative in a blink and what he's gonna do is he's gonna adorn you with adjectives suited for eternity with him. That's pretty cool. So in summary, Paul's idea of resurrection is not this idea of something completely new altogether, but rather a redeeming of God's original creation. That if you go back to verse 37, when you plant a kernel of wheat, you don't get an apple tree, you get a wheat stalk. So there's a similarity there. But the stalk is more glorious than the kernel. It's different altogether in a sense. So there is discontinuity. And the same is true of creation itself. Romans 8 
crucial passage for what Paul's arguing here. Uh, He says this in uh, Romans 8, verses 19 through 21. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the original creation didn't have thorns and thistles. The original creation didn't have floods and droughts. When sin entered the world through Adam, a curse was not just pronounced upon Adam and Eve and Satan, but upon the creation itself. When Jesus returns, creation itself will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin, just like you and me. That creation itself will, in a blink, become more beautiful and efficient than it is now, suited for the purposes of eternity, adorned with new adjectives, you might say. God's not scrapping planet Earth and starting over. We're not gonna float away to some alternate universe. He's redeeming the original creation. Remember, the one that he pronounced good in the first place before sin entered the picture. He's gonna make it better. He's gonna make it into an eternal dwelling place for his people. Paul goes on to say in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, The mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes into a doxology of his own here. He just breaks forth into praise in the midst of his train of thought. He takes us back to Isaiah 25, that that God has had a plan to destroy death since before death entered the picture, before the foundations of the world. And Jesus is the one bringing that plan to fulfillment. Isn't it ironic? Think about it. Take yourself back to Golgotha. Take yourself back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't it ironic that death began to die when Jesus died? You ever thought about that before? That Satan was pretty confident that death had won that day, right? He thought that he had finally conquered Jesus, but we see the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. That death is like a bee buzzing around without a stinger, you might say. It's in our faces, it's something that we experience, it's something that we can't escape, but Jesus has taken the sting out of death. Christ bore the sting of death in our place. He absorbed the venom and drained it of its potency, of its vigor. Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, that Jesus bore our sin. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. But three days later, we're told he rose from the dead, conquering our great enemies of sin and death so that we can now confidently sing songs like this. We can sing, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. We can sing that confidently because of what Paul's saying this morning. The the law can't save us. The law shows us how helpless we are. That's what Paul's saying in verse 56, that we can't do enough to cause God to look down upon us and go, please be on my team, please. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can take the stinger out of death is what Paul's saying. 
that where sin is pardoned by the way of the cross of Christ, death has no sting. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. To live is Christ and to die is gain because to die is Christ too. I get him either way. Like that kind of thinking, that kind of believing is, is what creates an army of missionaries that just can't be stopped. What's the, what's the worst you can do to me? Kill me? Then what? Jesus, you can't stop me. That's what couldn't stop the disciples in the early church from taking the gospel forth. That's what caused the gospel to spread. That's what causes the gospel to continue to spread in persecuted parts of the world right now where the church is growing more than it is here. We're in the boneyard of Christianity. Christianity is on the decline in the Bible Belt, even though the number of church buildings wouldn't agree with that. What would it look like for us to believe this? This passage is meant to liberate us from fear, from complacency, from despair. It's meant to awaken us, going back to last week, from our drunken stupor. Paul's going, wake up. Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's alive and well. And that means something very different for you. Verse 58, therefore, in light of everything I've said, for 57 verses, Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, that we can be immovable in our faith because Jesus is immovable on his throne. Now, let's be honest. We all find ourselves all over the map, don't we? Man, I love Jesus today. We're so close. We sound like David in the Psalms, right? Where are you, God? I'm so close to you. Where'd you go? And we're just back and forth all over the map. I love my Bible. My Bible's so boring. I love praying to you and talking to you, God. I haven't talked to you in three weeks. And we're just all over the map. We're so movable. When your fickle heart tries to condemn you in those moments, you need to be reminded of who Jesus is. We need to stop looking at ourselves so much and look to the throne of God. When we're movable, Jesus isn't. Jesus doesn't go back and forth from the throne to the grave to the throne to the grave to the throne to the grave. He's sitting on his throne and he's unshakable. He's not going anywhere, even when we do. And what that means is that what we do for the glory of God is is not in vain because he is sitting on his throne. He is in power. He is ruling. He's reigning. He said he will build his church, and he's not a liar. And what that means is that he is capable. If he can overcome death, he can overcome every obstacle in your heart that stands in the way of making much of him. And if he can overcome death, he can overcome every obstacle in the way of the hearts of others who you're surrounded by that you're just not sure the gospel's ever gonna break through and in on. God is big. And if we see this passage for what Paul's saying, it changes us. I'm tempted, uh, I thought about this this past week, probably need to run this by the staff, but I'm tempted to just throw up on the screen in big, giant, all caps letters uh, that, that you see every week when you come in here in 2016, expect God to move. Because we just don't oftentimes, right? We, we're, we so easily forget that. We come in and we're, we're like, yeah, I'm here we're going to read the Bible a little bit. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to drink some mediocre coffee. It's going to be all good, you know. <laughs> I didn't sleep in today, so, you know, check for me. And, and we just kind of, we, we, we get about the motions of this thing, and we completely miss the reality that God has been on the move since before the foundations of the world. 
He was on the move through the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and he's on the move in our lives right now as we're being conformed to the image of Jesus, a work that he's not done with yet in us, but that we should expect him to continue to do in us and through us in the lives of others so that when we show up in this place every week, we do walk in going, I expect you to move, God. I expect you to do something. I'm anticipating that you're gonna do something in me and in others around me as we all come together and dwell by the third person of the Godhead collectively, that we anticipate that to happen. Good Lord, this sounds like Vision Sunday for 2016. But shouldn't every week be? Shouldn't we anticipate God to move? And I hope that we will as we continue on into 2016, as we begin this new year, that we will anticipate that God is gonna do great things because he's a resurrected, risen king who sits on his throne and he is fully capable and he desires to do so. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal's for you. Uh, We take uh, communion here by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you are a Christian, uh, as we prepare for this time, uh, and very simply, I would just encourage you, challenge you to get a vision of the king on his throne. Look at your life. Look at all of the, the moving parts, the, the shakeability, the corruptibility, the weakness, the decay, the sin, and, and, and then look at the throne of Jesus, the perfect one, the one who's not going anywhere, who is king over your life. And get a glimpse of him as you come and take the bread and dip it in the cup this morning. If you're not a Christian, and I pray that you would become one, it's, it's, a, it's a step of faith to trust in, in who he is, what he's done, to trust that his life lived was the life you couldn't live on your behalf, that, that his death died was your death on your behalf for your sin, and that he rose and conquered those great enemies of yours. And as Paul puts it, I pray that this morning would become the day that you belong to God, that you can anticipate everything that we've been talking about today and look forward to that with great anticipation. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S. P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.